Good morning, Westgate Chapel. Y'all ready to worship this morning? I saw a couple nods in there, but I didn't hear it. Y'all ready to worship this morning? Come on. Would you stand and join us? Good morning, church family. 
We are so glad you are here to worship with us this morning. As we start the morning off, if you don't have your sermon notes, if you need the song lyrics as we go through our worship this morning, and forget the other one, the connection card. You can find that on the back table back there, or you can find it on the Westgate Chapel app on your phone. Um, but I would like to have take a moment if you guys want to have a seat and direct your attention to the screen. Good morning and welcome to Westgate Chapel. We are so glad you chose to worship with us today. My name is Evan and I'm on the worship team here at Westgate. Thanks for joining us. We've got a lot of really exciting things happening here this summer at Westgate. Of course, there's a worship center refresh and the parking lot project. We're enjoying the change of pace worshiping together as a church family here in the gym. And with all that excitement, we want to make sure you don't miss out on some other great things happening this summer. Check these out. Get ready for an incredible day next Sunday, August 20th. It's our annual outdoor service and picnic. Bring your lawn chairs and blankets for our one service at 1045. After that, we'll walk on over to the grassy area on our adjoining property to enjoy a big church family picnic. We'll also have a tractor with wagon to give folks a ride to the picnic site if needed. We'll be providing hot dogs, hamburgers, chips and drinks, lawn games, and bounce houses. This year, we're also bringing in a Kona ice truck. These dessert items will be for purchase. Invite your neighbors, invite your friends as we wind down the summer together. Trust us, you won't want to miss it. Make plans to join us next Sunday. We've got something exciting planned for our service on Sunday, September 3rd. We're opening up the floor to your burning questions. Throughout our study of the book of Mark over the past three months, we're sure you've come across some interesting points or had thoughts you'd love to explore further. Well, now's your chance. We're giving you an opportunity to ask the preaching team. Your questions about the book of Mark can be regarding the text, context, theology, history, or practical applications, and you've got a couple of options for submitting them. Out on the tables in the entrances, you'll find a postcard where you can jot down your questions, or if you prefer a more digital approach, you can submit them through our Westgate app or by scanning the QR code on the screen. Deadline to submit questions is Sunday, August 27th. Are you brand new or new-ish to Westgate? Then you're invited to the new people party. Join us on September 10th after the second service for lunch, meet some of our staff, connect with other new people, and learn a little about Westgate. Sign up at westgatechapel.org events to let us know you are coming. We can't wait to meet you. And on that note, with Evan saying we can't wait to meet you, why don't you guys stand up and take a moment and meet and greet each other. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. 
the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sin had 
gracious Heavenly Father, you are in this place. You do not need us to welcome you into this place, but we welcome you into our hearts. And let our ears be open to whatever you have for us today. Be with this service and let the words fall sweetly in Jesus' name. Go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Steve Fisher. I am the pastor of student ministries here at the church. Um, and, and as we come out of worship and before we go into our offering this morning, I want to share just a story of as you give your resources and your time into our church, I wanted to hear just for you to hear the impact that that's having in real people in our, in our church. And so Josh is up here and Josh is just going to share a little about his time and his story in student ministry and then serving uh, with our leadership team. Absolutely. Yeah. So my name is Josh Henry. Um, I did get my wisdom teeth out this past Friday, if I, so if I sound goofy, I'm blaming it on that. Um, but yeah, I've been uh, going to this church for about 13 years now, um, and this will be my fourth year as a leader. And um, looking back, the, uh, the leaders, when I was a student, meant so much to me. My dad was my life group leader from 6th grade to 12th grade, and then uh, Tom Richards was also my leader. And I uh, hold them both so highly, I go to them often to just pour into me. But um, Around third grade, my parents got divorced, and uh, it didn't really affect me all too much until I got into middle school, and my dad would uh, drag me to church, and at the time, I didn't really like it. But um, over time, all the leaders and the, just the other students kind of, I felt the love that they had for me, and it wasn't any, like any kind of love I'd felt before. It was looking, now I know it was 100% Jesus Christ pouring through them. And um, so I just, I, over time, I wanted to come more and more and uh, just get to know the people that were pouring into me. And uh, I just remember there were events like, like fall retreat we would go on where I felt like it always landed on uh, basketball tryouts. And so I, was, I never got to play on the actual team because I would always go to the fall retreat and always bum me out. But there was one leader that uh, in particular, Big Nate, I remember he would spend about 30 minutes to an hour every day on that weekend just uh, playing basketball with me, kind of trying to teach me stuff here and there. And so just little stuff like that always stood out to me. It wasn't he didn't do anything massive other than just play basketball, but I, I will remember that fondly for the rest of my life. And so as time went on, I got closer to the other leaders and the students to the point where my group, uh, we stuck together pretty nicely with pretty much 10 kids from 6th grade all the way up to 12th grade. And um, we, all, we still pour into each other today. I actually had the blessing of being in a couple of their weddings this past summer. And so just those friendships mean so much to me, and I 100% believe it is when Jesus Christ is the foundation of those friendships, it, they're so much stronger. And so as I'm graduating high school, I um, was supposed to go active duty Air Force, but with COVID screwing things up, it also screwed up that job. And so I took a step back, and I was just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I still wanted to go active duty Air Force. I didn't know if I wanted to work full time. I didn't know if I wanted to go to trade school. And so I went to the leaders of the church. I went to Steve. I went to uh, Dan. And I went to uh, Tom Richard's mother, the leader, and just asked them for advice because I, I felt lost. I knew that if I uh, went off to the Air Force and pursued that, I don't know if my faith would have been as strong as it is. And so they encouraged me to uh, take a leadership role at the church as a middle school leader. And it, it's paid dividends. It's just being able to pour into these kids the same way I was poured into by all the leaders and just kind of experience the love of Christ and just kind of show that to these kids and show that no matter what's going on at home, 
what um, is happening in their lives, they can come here, and they're the leaders and other students that just love them so dearly. It's, it's been amazing. There are kids who will show up halfway through the year, and very quickly they're integrated, and everyone treats them like they've been there from day one. And it's just a truly a blessing to be a part of that and now being able to, you know, just be a leader to all these kids. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. I wanted you to hear that uh, because student ministry is kicking off here in two weeks. Kids ministry is at the start of next month. And I could give you a whole bunch of days, but those are on your apps and on our website. You can go out to the atrium and there's calendars for all you planning parents out there of all the stuff coming up. But I want you to hear that, like, the impact our church has in the lives of our kids and students are real. And, and God works through the community of believers, right, as, as kids and students pursue faith. Um, and so, you know, I was just listening to a podcast the other day, and, and they, had a, they were talking about some stats. And, and I'll just remind you, parents, you still hold the number one spot of influence in your student and kid's life, whether you think you do or not, you are still the most impactful. But the second then he, that this guy said, and this stat's been true for a long time, is the environment that they get placed in has this massive impact on the direction that they go. And so my encouragement, if you're a student or a kid in the room or you're a parent or a grandparent, that being part of the fellowship of believers is so important. Being in an environment where you have leaders who are walking in step with God's spirit, who then when times get tough, you go to them because you have built a trust level for them. And I know there's a lot of things that can take up your time um, and, and love sports and, and clubs and all of this, but the impact that Christ's body can have in your life is eternal. And so it's just an encouragement for your kid and your student to be involved with us also, if you're an adult, uh, to become a leader, to become one who pours into this next generation, to go, yeah, there's a lot of good things that I could spend my time doing, but this has eternal impact. And so we have needs in kids and student ministry. I know sometimes I'm not trying to beg you to come and serve with us, but I do want to present that to our church and go, hey, it's our call to give our lives for those around us, to spread the kingdom. And this is one of the ways that we do it. And then lastly, as we're going to, I'm going to pray and then take the offering, I just remind you that, you know, when you give, sometimes it just feels like I'm just putting a check in a bucket or, you know, I, I set up online, I forget about it. But God's having impact in our lives all around our community, in our church, through what you guys give. It isn't like we can't run all the ministries we run without that. And so thank you for giving and know that that money is kingdom building. So let's pray uh, and then we'll take this morning's offering. Dear God, we thank you for the way that you continue to uh, be faithful to us, uh, that we can trust you. Thank you that um, you give us uh, the, the community, the fellowship of believers to help guide and direct us, especially in challenging times. Thank you that we can lean on those uh, that ultimately gain all of their wisdom through you and then are able to give that to us. Um, and so as kids and student ministries kick off here in the next couple of weeks, we just pray that, um, yeah, lives would be impacted, uh, that kids and students would come to faith uh, and they would continue and walk in that, being secure through the power of your spirit. And I pray that as uh, we pass the offering, that that money would be used to expand your kingdom. Um, 
that we would trust that you would guide and direct each dollar, um, that it would have eternal impact in our lives and in our community. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. If you're sitting in the middle, would you please just pass that bucket uh, down to the other side? Thanks. church. Uh, again, if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Rob Zimmerman. I'm the lead pastor uh, here at Westgate. And before we dive into a few things together this morning into the word, first thing I want to do is acknowledge that we have got a couple in this room that we must all congratulate. And that is Dan and Libby Russell. <laughs> pastor Dan and Libby got married uh, last week and uh, we're stoked that you guys made it back mostly in one piece, and uh, just excited for what God is doing in your guys' lives. So congratulations to both of you. Um, another thing uh, before we jump into God's Word together this morning is I wanted to give you all a quick update on our Worship Center Refresh. Uh, we've been in this room together worshiping. It has been a sweet time, and uh, slowly but surely we're getting closer to the finish line. I believe uh, that we are about we will have about four more weeks, Lord willing, in uh, this space worshiping together, and then we'll be moving back into the worship center. You'll see a picture up on the screen. I took this for you this morning, but uh, work is progressing. You'll see the outline of where the pews go. They're going to be laying down kind of the laminate flooring uh, where the pews are, and then the carpet will go in next. They're also going to be pouring the final concrete on our uh, stage and platform, and so it is moving along, and I'm hoping that this next phase just blows right through. Um, and so it's very exciting. Uh, there has been one little bit of a hiccup that I'll ask you guys to pray for. It should not affect our getting back in, but uh, I need you to pray for alpacas in China to shed more fur. I know that's like a weird thing, <laughs> but there is a good potential when we move in, we may still have pink pews for a little while. Apparently, uh, the alpacas took a hiatus during COVID, and uh, they don't keep the same stock in pew material. So I know that's weird. Feel free to put it on your prayer chains and tell your friends anyway. So, uh, but... Uh, Aside from that, uh, that may, we may have to change those later in September, but uh, all that to say, things are coming along great. Uh, I have been most thankful to see how God has been uh, just providing as we have gone through this. This has been a dream and something we've been pushing for uh, to update the worship center since the unfinished initiative prior to COVID. And uh, I'm thankful for you and for your generosity to help move this project forward and see it to completion. Many of you have seen my emails that have been coming out uh, uh, about that, and then uh, you'll see in your worship guide again this morning just a quick update on the finances. We committed as a church that we would not go into debt to do this after we paid off our other debt, and uh, we have stuck true to that. When we began this project, we had about $80,000 uh, when we began uh, tearing things apart, about 80000 that still needed to be raised. A number of families in our church came together and have raised about two-thirds of that already of what is needed. And so 
I'm very excited. We have about a third left to go. And one of the things we're going to do is just a special offering in a couple of weeks. And this is not on any obligation. I'm not going to be up here and try to guilt people or look at you funny and try to get you to do something you don't want to do. But I am going to ask for us as a church to prayerfully consider if God would provide for us to be able to help us meet the finish line uh, and and get this baby paid off. And so... uh, we would ask if you would prayerfully consider uh, being a part of that in two weeks. On August 27th, at the close of our service, we're going to just take a special offering. Whoever wants to be involved can be involved. You'll see that there are uh, envelopes that look like this that are at the back tables uh, in the east entrance that you can grab if you're interested in being a part of that. You can also give online. Uh, And remember, too, those will be available next week, and this is super important. Please hear this if you weren't in here for the video Next Sunday, one service at 1045, outside service with a picnic to follow. And so bring your chairs, uh, come dressed for hot weather. Right now it's looking like 89 degrees, which is fantastic. And when, we, when he said Kona ice truck, I, I heard this like giggle and excitement in the room. So anyway, uh, we've got a great day that's planned. Uh, be sure to be there. But all of this will be available next week as well. And uh, we're just excited as a church to see God's provision through a season that's been hard for a number of years, but God is providing, and most importantly, God is doing an incredible work in this church and in the lives of so many people. And so before we begin uh, in the word together this morning, I want to pause and again and just give a prayer of thanks to the Lord and invite him to come and to speak into our hearts this morning. And it's not that he needs an invitation, but a lot of times we need to clear the space in our hearts to open it up so that we can hear from him. So join me in prayer, would you? Lord, we give you thanks. You, uh, Father, you are the God who provides. And the way that you have provided in greatest abundance for us is that you sent your son Jesus in this, into this world to die on a cross for our sin. Father, you have given us the priceless gift of salvation that we did not deserve. And Father, we acknowledge that it's the very reason that we gather here together and worship together every single week is that we long to be with you and to be in your presence. We long to sing songs of worship and to yield our hearts to you, to learn from your word and allow you to speak through it into our hearts and our lives. And so, Father, we thank you for just the way that you have shown and proven yourself throughout the years in our personal lives and in our church, your incredible faithfulness, your provision, and truly, God, the depth of your love for us. As we come to this time of getting into your word this morning, God, I want to pray that your Holy Spirit would have room to speak into our hearts. We give them to you. We invite you to come in and, God, to do a work, a transforming work in us that we would honor you with all of our hearts and lives. We love you and we give this time to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, uh, if you've got your sermon notes, I'd encourage you to to, uh, pull those out and follow along. If you didn't get them and you would like some, you can grab them at the table that is in the back. Uh, And also, again, they're on uh, our Westgate app if you would like to follow along with us. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15, as that's where we will be centered uh, this morning and spend the majority of our time. But as we dive in, and as I was thinking about the preparation for this marriage uh, uh, message, we are coming to the end of the book of Mark, a series that we have been in for a long time. And uh, one of the things we began with was talking about this, is that we live today in a world where there are many different thoughts and beliefs about who Jesus is, a lot. 
And we, we began this series as we dove into this, inspecting a few of those. And even this past uh, week, I went and looked at a number of surveys that have been done recently in the last year or two about what people believe about who Jesus was, the person of Jesus. And one of the things that I actually, that stood out to me that I thought was rather encouraging was a statistic that said uh, just last year that 76% of adults in America believe in the historical existence of Jesus. Now, in the way that our world and culture has been going, I'm not sure I would have believed that statistic at first. I mean, but they did this study and 76% believe in the historical person of Jesus, that there was a real person named Jesus who walked this earth. But what people actually believe about him, as you would guess, is very different. 52% in the same study of, of adults in America believe that he was nothing more than a good teacher, that he went around teaching good moral ideas for people to follow, and that's basically what it was. And there's a smattering of other beliefs that go along with that. Other people might say that he was a prophet or just a good man, and you could flip the coin and look on the other side, and there are some that would say he's a liar and he's a fraud. There are all sorts of beliefs about who he was. But there was... Uh, none of those things actually surprised me, but there was one statistic that actually to me was disheartening. And it was a statistic that said this, is that there is almost a third of evangelical Christians, 30% of evangelical Christians believe that Jesus was just a good teacher. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that we could call ourselves a Christian, read God's word, and come up with the idea that Jesus was nothing more than a good teacher. You know, as we look at our culture today, and we see just how rapidly it is losing and abandoning its moral compass, we see similar things even happening within the church as Christianity is slowly sliding away from our beliefs about who Jesus is or was in Scripture you know, when we began this series, we said that one of the most important things we have to hold on to is this, is what you believe to be true about Jesus will absolutely determine the course of your life. And I want you to think about that this morning as we continue, because we are coming into a passage of scripture for Mark that is truly the climax of his book and the entire point that he has been driving home uh, throughout his gospel what you believe to be true about Jesus will determine the course of your life. If he's nothing more, if Jesus is nothing more than a good teacher, then he is really only good to teach you how to be a good person. I had a conversation with an individual uh, a number of weeks ago who was sharing with me kind of their own religious beliefs and background. And the things that they said and the things that they thought were that, you know, church and, and God, it's good for you to go so that you can learn how to be a good person. And like there are moral things that can make you a better, more thriving person in our society. And I'm sure that there's some weird like truth to that, but there's a lack of understanding of the person Jesus and why he actually came. You see, if that's what you think and that's what you believe, it also means though that there is no surrender for you or no need for you to surrender your life to him if that's all that he is. And certainly there's a little moral conviction because just a secular desire to be a better person while you will actually cause you to fill your life with the pleasures of this world rather than to seek God. But if Jesus is the Son of God, as the Scripture teaches, 
If he is God in human flesh, then it changes everything about how we live our lives. And so as we dive into the scripture this morning, what we're going to see is that Mark knows that the answer to accepting God's son and yielding one's life to him is found in a very clear understanding of who Jesus is. Mark has been telling us from the very beginning that his greatest priority is that we would understand who Jesus is. He, he, aside from other Gospels, keeps all of the accounts and the events that happen uh, a lot shorter. Matthew, Luke, John, they expound in much greater detail on certain events. But Mark kind of gets to the point, and one of Mark's primary purposes is to drive home the fact of who Jesus is. We see it from the very beginning of his Gospel. And I want you to think about how people, as we have gone through this study together, how people view Jesus and who he is in Mark's gospel. Obviously, at the very beginning in Mark chapter 1, Mark tells us flatly who, who he is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Then we see it again in Mark chapter 1 when he gives the account of Jesus coming and being baptized. And as he goes down into the water and rises out, says that a dove, the Spirit of God, comes down and descends upon him. And that the voice of God speaks from heaven. And what does God say in Mark chapter 1? This is who? My beloved son. Abundantly clear. This is my beloved son. If you were to continue in Mark chapter 1... When Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, he has an encounter with a man who is demon-possessed, and he has this conversation with the demons there. And what, how do the demons reference Jesus? They call him what? The Holy One of God. They themselves know and see that there is something uniquely different about who Jesus is. He is set apart from the rest of humanity. He is specifically sent himself by God. As you look and you continue through chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, the disciples experience incredible miracles that Jesus is doing. Things that would make their eyes just, uh, they would be in a state of unbelief of the things that they're actually seeing. And at the end of chapter 4, you'll remember that they're out on this boat together with Jesus and a huge storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee and they're terrified and then Jesus gets up, he calms the storm. And what does it say about the disciples in that moment? Do you remember? that they were terrified, not of the storm of Jesus and the power that he held. You see, they were still seeking and trying to understand who is Jesus. Like they couldn't quite grasp it. But immediately following that in Mark chapter 5, as the boat docks over in the area of the Gerasenes, we see the, the Gerasene demoniac, another de demon-possessed man, who comes running down the hills as they're exiting and, and getting onto the land, and he cries out to Jesus and calls him what? The Son of the Most High God. He recognizes exactly who Jesus is, the Son of the Most High God. The disciples have seen Jesus heal people. He has seen him cast out demons, the power that he has and the authority that he has over the wind and the waves and all of nature. They have seen him feed the 5,000 and yet they still don't quite get it even though it seems like even the demons understand. And we fast forward to Mark chapter 8 and the peep, Jesus says to his disciples as they're walking together, he says, who do people say that I am? And do you remember what their response was? It was, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. 
Some people think maybe you're Elijah. Others have this idea that you are one of the prophets. Well, as they say this, again, there are so many different opinions about the person of Jesus. Jesus then turns in that same chapter and looks at Peter and says, well, who do you say that I am? And if you remember from when we finished out the first half of the book there in chapter 8, is that Peter's answer is what we would call right, but maybe almost right. Not quite there. What is his response? Peter says, you are the Christ. In other words, he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that they have heard that God would send to deliver Israel from their oppressors, and it is absolutely true and correct. But what we begin to see and what becomes abundantly clear, even as we continue through the the book, is that humanity still hasn't quite figured out the answer. God himself knows he sent him. The spiritual forces of evil, the demons, know exactly who Jesus is. But when we see, when it comes to his disciples and the people that have interacted with him, even who have been healed by him, they still have not quite figured out the answer. And we see this still as we look at the passage that we talked about last week in Mark chapter 14. Jesus and the disciples gather together in the upper room for the Passover meal where he institutes the Lord's Supper. And he continues to reveal again more about who he is and what he has come for, sharing with them, even in the institution of the Lord's Supper, that, the, that Jesus himself would have to suffer and to die. Something that the disciples couldn't quite understand and couldn't quite grasp. And following this meal together, it tells us that they exit the upper room and they go down across the valley and up the uh, Mount of Olives and they sit there and they, they, well, they sleep while Jesus prays on the mountain. And then comes Judas, the betrayer, and the soldiers. And Jesus is taken and what would begin one of the longest nights of his life leading to the moment of his death where he would endure illegal trials that would be beyond anything we could imagine. And that brings us to our passage this morning in chapter 15. Chapter 15, though, as we read it, is one of the most sobering passages in Mark's entire gospel. And as I said, it serves as the climax of Mark's revelation of the person of Jesus. It is a hard passage to read. Charles Spurgeon said of this passage, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. No man can rightly expound a passage such as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than human language. D.A. Carson said it this way. He said, as Jesus' death was unique, so also was his anguish. And our best response to it is hushed worship. The passage is heavy. And yet Mark is going to use his words in in chapter 15 of his gospel to recount for us Jesus' suffering in order to continue to teach us more, not about just what Jesus endured, but about who Jesus is. And so if you have your Bibles, read with me in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. It says this, as soon 
As it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And yet Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate as to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have them release Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. As we recount Jesus' suffering, Mark describes for us what Jesus endures. But remember as we look at this, he's not just telling you what Jesus went through. He's giving you a picture of who Jesus is. Try to see it. The first thing we see in this passage that we just read is the injustice. Mark described in great detail the injustice that Jesus faced. He's gone through a night of illegal trials where he's taken in the middle of the night where nobody can see what's going on, hear what's being said, where crowds can't be stirred up. And they take him from place to place, from leader to leader, with drummed up charges, things that are not true about who he was, because as Pilate so eloquently said, you're kind of just jealous of him. And they take him on drummed up charges, eventually to Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Now, I want you to understand something about who Pontius Pilate was. Pilate was a governor over Judea. He was actually the longest serving governor in Rome over this specific area, about 14 years that he served. But Pilate was known to be uh, a little bit of a man who held a powerful position but had no problem offending the Jews or dealing harshly with them. Any time that they would come and they would rise up and they might protest something, he had no problem sending the Roman soldiers in to slaughter them in order to quell the, the uprising. He had no problem as well doing things that would just be offensive to kind of put them down. There's one account uh, outside of the Bible and other historical uh, resources that talk about how he had the blood of Jews that had been slaughtered mixed in with the blood that would be sacrificed in, uh, in the temple. That there were things that he would do. He had no problem being harsh with people. But it makes it so much more interesting to see then 
his response. It's almost a little bit baffling how he responds to the situation with Jesus. You see, uh, he says that he was irritated, wanting to keep the calm and not draw a whole lot of attention. He wanted to keep the crowd at bay, if you will. And he stands here as Jesus brought before him. He points out that the religious leaders just have a bone to pick. And he, he doesn't see anything wrong with who Jesus is, even to the point of saying, guys, look, I'm going to release a murderer, somebody who was a murderer in this insurrection. This guy's not done anything wrong. He actually kind of goes to bat for him. And yet the crowd is stirred up by the religious leaders and Pilate, wanting to keep the calm, releases a known criminal, and it says, knowingly sends an innocent man to be crucified. You know, injustice in our world today is a quality that is related to unfairness or undeserved outcomes. From the time we're young, injustice is something that bothers us. If I take one of my children with me, uh, to Starbucks, and I buy them something, and then I bring them home, and they still have the cup. You know what happens, right? The other two undoubtedly look at me and go, where's mine? This isn't fair. Why didn't you get me one? I might have a child laughing in the room, um, right? And, and they sit there, and they talk about fairness, and what is my response typically when this happens? I have one of two things that I'll say. Sometimes I'll look at the, my child who is complaining about fairness, and I'll say, well, I just like them more than you, not true, but it's fun to say. Uh, on the other hand, I'll say what many of you have heard from your parents, like I heard from mine, which is what? Life's not fair, right? Life is not fair. Injustice happens all the time. It's when things aren't fair or we experience undeserved outcomes. Maybe when your kid doesn't make a certain sports team because of politics that happen. When you've earned a promotion, or when you have earned a promotion at work, but are passed over because of the relationship that somebody has with those who are in charge. When you're treated differently because of a disability, because of your age, or because of the color of your skin. When people with power, which we see all the time on TV, stars or politicians break the law, and they get preferential treatment. Injustice. It seems that you can't turn on the news or even look in our world today without seeing rampant injustice everywhere. And the truth is, is that we hate injustice, especially when it comes to our doors or affects those who are closest to us. But what we experience will never even come close to the injustice that Jesus faced. And Mark wants us to understand in a very clear way the injustice that Jesus faced in his illegal trials and as a man with all the power to save him who knew that he was innocent, allowed him to go to his death. The passage continues in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. And it says that the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. They clothed Jesus in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was about the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. What Mark does again here in this passage is paints a very clear picture for us of not just the injustice that Jesus faced, but the humiliation of Jesus. Now, when we think of humiliation in our own context, we think of we think of it in terms of momentary embarrassment. You know, a, a number, uh, a couple of years ago, I was walking at the post office uh, to go in and to mail something, and when I came back out, I walk up to my car, and uh, as I got to my car and I looked inside of it, there was a woman that was sitting in the driver's seat, and I remember looking at her like, what are you doing? And then as I looked at her, I looked to my side and realized she had the same exact car I had, and there was my car on the other side. I felt really stupid. Momentary humiliation, right? Completely embarrassed, like, sorry, you know, walk over my car, get and drive away as fast as I can. Momentary embarrassment. Maybe we forget somebody's name. Maybe you're preaching and you forget how to recite John 3.16. Most embarrassing thing, I'm telling you, pastor. Uh, So many different ways that we experience momentary embarrassment in our lives. But the humiliation that Jesus experienced was different. Because the purpose behind crucifixion was to completely strip an individual of their humanity. It was complete and utter humiliation. Jesus was utterly and completely stripped of his humanity. And the goal of crucifixion was to strip him of his status and credibility so it would crumble before the masses. Crucifixion, as we read this passage about it in Rome, served as a form of also entertainment for the masses. Rome thought it a sport. When we think of entertainment, we think of going to the movies, we think of going to a concert, going to a sporting event. But for Rome, one of the greatest forms of entertainment was to brutally kill individuals. They were known for sending people to the Colosseum for public executions as a form of entertainment. Oftentimes, the gladiator games involve slaves and war prisoners or criminals and even Christians who would have to fight to the death. Some would be sentenced to death, stripped naked, placed in the middle of Colosseum, and wild animals released to devour them. Some people would be beheaded. Others would be publicly burned at the stake while people danced and celebrated around them. But crucifixion was the most heinous, horrible form 
and punish of punishment that Rome had to dole out on another person. And as well, they saw it as a form of entertainment. It was Josephus who said every day that Roman soldiers caught 500 Jews or more, and the soldiers, driven by their hatred for the Jews, would nail them to crosses, sometimes nailing their bodies in contorted positions as a form of sport and entertainment for themselves and also to horrify the Jews. And once convicted, we read that Jesus was forced to carry his cross to a place called Golgotha, or the skull. Likely a spot on the side of the road, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, on top of a hill or by the side of a road where a crowd could gather or a passerby could stop and watch the spectacle. We read from the gospel accounts that he was stripped of his clothing, nailed to the cross, and left naked to die one of the most excruciatingly painful deaths of asphyxiation. Crucifixion was a graphic public demonstration of the loss of honor, and it was meant to degrade you of your very humanity. And at that, we read that passerbys and Roman soldiers, the general public, would stand there and look at Jesus and hurl insults while he endured this. Mark paints a picture for us of the complete humiliation, unlike anything we will ever experience that Jesus endured on the cross, ultimately, which led to his death. In verse 33, it tells us that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling to Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And then Jesus uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark paints for us this picture of the death of Jesus. And Jesus' death is most definitely the darkest moment in all of history. I say that not just figuratively, but literally. As we read the passage, it tells us that Jesus was crucified at about the third hour of the day. But then, about the sixth hour, sometime around noon, that darkness came over the entire land for a three-hour period. Some people have surmised that maybe this was some sort of eclipse that happened, that it was just some sort of you know, a uh, thing that, that took place that was of normal course. But because of where the Passover lands, we know that it wasn't a new, a new moon, but it was actually a full moon. And so an eclipse was not what would actually take place at that moment. But what the biblical writers talk about is that oftentimes these moments of darkness were the judgment and the wrath of God that were descending. And knowing what was taking place at Jesus' crucifixion, this darkness, which even outside of the Bible, other historical uh, writers and historians have said that this darkness extended to the entire Roman Empire, that what was taking place at this moment was an eschatological thing. 
that literally the judgment and wrath of God towards the sin of mankind came at that moment upon Jesus himself as he bore the weight of our sin on the cross. And it says that in this moment that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fully exposed to the horror of humanity's sin. Not only did he carry the weight of our sin and the punishment of it, but he felt the fullness of separation from God that is ours because of our sin. And Mark paints a picture for us of the creator of all things being killed at the hands of his creation. And it would seem that in this very moment that all of evil in this world rejoiced, believing that their moment had come, that the demons and Satan himself maybe cried out in celebration that this would be their crowning moment. But what Mark wants us to understand as he paints this picture again is not just what happened to Jesus, but he wants us to understand who Jesus is. As you think about the injustice and the humiliation and Jesus's death that he endured, I want you to see this because in recounting Jesus's suffering, Mark more deeply reveals Jesus's character and his purpose to us. Letter A, the injustice that Jesus faced brilliantly reveals to us the beauty of how he justified us. Think about these words that the Apostle Paul would speak in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Full stop, right there. Paul helps us to understand the depth of our sin, that all of us have sinned and are separated from the glory of God, that our destiny is to die and to be separate from him for all of eternity. That is our lot because of our rebellion against him. But he doesn't stop there. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but what? Are justified by his grace, Jesus' grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is incredible to read Mark's understanding of the injustice that Jesus faced as he paints this picture for us because it reveals to an even greater degree the beauty of how he has justified us. Who would be put to death at the hands of his creation and turn around and say, I will willingly die for you so that you can have life? And yet that is what he did. And what it means when it says that he justified you is that he paid the price for your sin that you deserved. He took it on himself so that you wouldn't face it, so, but so that you could be reconciled to God. Literally the picture of walking into a courtroom where a murderer has been, has been completely convicted of their sin and they are ready to receive their punishment. And an innocent man walks up and says, I will take that for you. Go and be free. This is what Jesus has done for you. And Mark wants us to see the beauty 
of Jesus' justification of us, even though he himself faced the greatest injustice this world could give. Letter B, Jesus' humiliation reveals the depth of his own humility. Though the world sought to strip him of his very dignity and humanity, he willingly humbled himself. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus resided with the Father in heaven, in the very throne room, experiencing the perfection where angels would worship him day and night around the throne. And it says that he left the confines of heaven to become, come down to this earth, a broken and sinful place, and to become one of us in order that he might be put to death at the hands of his creation so that our lives might be saved. You know, many people in this world struggle with seeing God as having humility. They say, how could God be a loving God and yet still send people to hell? But the beauty of the gospel is, to be honest with you, our rebellion against God from the very beginning for all of humanity is that we should have been done away with a long time ago. From the very beginning, the way we have rebelled against God and turned our hearts from him, the way that we continue to do so, I mean, you would think, I mean, you would do this with someone who, that if you had created something and it turned on you, certainly you wouldn't just let it be. What does the Bible tell us? That God in his love sent his son who humbled himself to become like one of us, to die in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. And in this, God reveals the depth of his love for you. Let her see Jesus' death reveals the depth of God's love. And ultimately, though he died, his plan to give you life. John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And this is the crux of the gospel message, that a sinful creation, all of humanity, has rejected God, but in his great love for us, he became one of us to die in our place, taking the wrath of God on himself that was towards our sin, paying our penalty so that we could be with God. Have you ever experienced a love like this in this world outside of Christ? Have you ever experienced something so beautiful? Do you recognize this morning just how deeply God loves you? 
want to see something cool in this passage? I think it's really cool. The last verse, verse 39. For the very first time in Mark's entire gospel, at the close of this book, or this chapter, a person, a human being, has grasped who Jesus was. For the very first time, at the very moment of Jesus' death, verse 39 reads, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. You see the power in this moment? It wasn't one of the disciples who was walking around experiencing all the miracles they had scattered and were running for their lives. It wasn't necessarily one of those people that had been healed by him. It was a Roman centurion who was a low man on the totem pole as a Roman soldier standing guard, making sure that nobody messed with the body. And as he watches Jesus die, as he sees him nailed to the cross and yet offer forgiveness to the people that had done so, as he hung there and he offered grace to the criminal that was hung next to him, as he witnessed his words, as he saw the darkness come over the land and then how Jesus died, he couldn't help but profess that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher, he wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Sent by God into the world to save the souls of men. And what does this teach us and what do we learn? That the cross is the intersection where God meets humanity and fully reveals himself to us. If you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior this morning, I would implore you to not leave today without doing so. Mark has gone to great lengths in his gospel to paint a picture for you of who Jesus was. Not just a good person, but your Savior. The one who came not just for Israel, but the one who came for you to pay the penalty for your sin so that you would not spend an eternity separated from God, but that you could be restored in a right relationship with the God who created you. And it doesn't matter how far you have run from God, the horrible things that you think you may have done in your life, there is nothing you have done that has made you go too far from God that he doesn't still turn to you and offer you the gift of salvation and of his grace and of his love. And today I want to invite you to yield your heart and your life to him as your savior. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me? If you are here this morning and you've never committed your life to Christ, but as you hear the words of the gospel and all that Jesus has done for you and who he was, and you know that you are in a place of need, you believe in Jesus and you want to give your heart and life to him, I wanna invite you to do so this morning. And you can do so by just praying a small, simple prayer. There's nothing magical about the words. It's just simply a prayer of commitment and belief that comes directly from your heart. If you want to make that decision this morning and know without a shadow of a doubt that you are reconciled to God in a right relationship and you want to yield your heart to him and follow him, I just invite you to pray these words in the quietness of your own heart with me. 
Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have sinned against you and I have often run away from you. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus into this world to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for my sin so that if I would place my faith in you, I could be reconciled to you. And Jesus, today I confess that I believe and I choose to give you my heart. Forgive me of my sin. And Father, I pray that you would give me the incredible gift of salvation as I yield my heart to you. Thank you for the promise that I can know without a shadow of a doubt that my name has been written in the Lamb's book of life and that I am a son or a child of God. If everyone would keep their heads bowed and their eyes closed, I just simply want to say if you prayed that prayer this morning, you can have full assurance and confidence that the Lord hears your prayer. And I would just like to ask, if you prayed that prayer, would you just take a moment of solidifying that decision? And while everybody's head is down and eyes closed, would you just quietly slip up your hand and say, today I made that confession to receive Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we give you so much praise and thanks for what you have done by sending your son into this world. And Lord, I pray over those who made that decision this morning to yield their heart and to yield their life to you. I ask God that you would transform their life, that they would know deeply that they are loved by you. And I pray that you would walk with them as they seek to live their life in honor and in worship of who you are and what you have done for them. And I pray as well, Lord, for all of the people in this room that have already made that decision to follow you. As we talked about just a little bit earlier, the words of this gospel are heavy. What happened to your son is so heavy that at times we don't have words to describe the depth of their meaning, but they bring us to a place of deep, heartfelt worship. And so in this moment, as we sing to you, God, hear the cry and worship of our hearts. But especially as we leave this room, help us, Father, to worship you with everything we do and everything we say and the way that we live, that you would be honored. It is our expression of love because of how you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. to
So God bless you, church family. I look forward to worshiping with you again next week. Have a great Sunday afternoon.